Swinging a shot up the middle and into center field. Two, nine, nine, eight. First pitch to Miguel. Swinging a shattered bad line drive. Base hit in wow. left. Two, nine, nine, nine. Packs the bat over the right. The one, one ground ball. Base hit in the right. Go crazy. Three thousand for Miguel Cabrera. La leyenda. A tribute to Miguel Cabrera. A five-part series. Here's Daniela Bruce and Dan Dickerson. Welcome to La Leyenda Episode 3. I'm Daniela Bruce, and on the last episode of La Leyenda, we relived Miguel Cabrera's early years in Major League Baseball as a member of the Florida Marlins and broke down the December 2007 trade that led one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time to Detroit. In this episode, we'll discuss Miggy's 2008 Detroit debut, including his first Tigers home run. We'll take you through Cabrera's first few seasons in the Motor City as the team began to find its footing with Dave Dombrowski at the helm and manager Jim Leland cultivating clubhouse chemistry, a Tigers team that went from finishing fifth place in the AL Central in 2008 to a 95-win first-place powerhouse by 2011. This will culminate with a deep dive into two of the most remarkable offensive performances by a player in Tigers history. Miguel Cabrera's Triple Crown MVP winning season in 2012 and his repeat MVP performance in 2013. During this time, the Tigers added two more AL Central first place finishes to their resume and a World Series appearance. It was a remarkable time to be a Detroit fan in which every game felt like an opportunity to witness history. As we bring that era to life and attempt to illustrate Miguel Cabrera's otherworldly achievements with the animation and ardor they deserve, we'll hear from several familiar names, individuals with first-hand accounts to greatness. In this hour, you'll hear from former Tigers manager Jim Leland and former Detroit players like Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Yvonne Rodriguez, Dontrell Willis, Cam Maven, Alex Avila, and Victor Martinez. What was it like to watch Miguel Cabrera day in and day out at this extraordinary time? in his career. One person who had a front row seat to that magic is our very own Dan Dickerson, the voice of the Detroit Tigers. Later this hour, he and I will reminisce about this era in Tigers history. We'll get to Miggy's exceptional 2012 and 2013 seasons later in this episode. But first, let's dig into his early Detroit years. In early December 2007, Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis were traded from the Florida Marlins to the Tigers in exchange for a bevy of young talent, including top prospect Cameron Mabin and pitcher Andrew Miller. On the last episode of La Leyenda, we heard from former Tigers president and CEO Dave Dombrowski about how the Cabrera trade developed quickly after attending the MLB winter meetings that year. Detroit manager Jim Leland recalled how quickly that deal came together. When we went to the winter meetings that year, Mr. Illich kind of half-jokingly said to Dave Dombrowski, do you think we could get that Cabrera guy? You know, Dave kind of laughed it off. And we're at the winter meetings and there's some other stuff going on. Dave was very thorough and we had some stuff going on with other teams and then all of a sudden this came up and we were like startled and it happened very fast. You know, Dave doesn't mess around. If he wants somebody, he normally goes out and gets them. So, you know, we were sitting really in the suite, the scouts, myself, it might have been a coach there, I'm not sure, but uh, we were kind of almost in disbelief. And we knew we were giving up a lot, too. You know, we were giving up several players to do this, but, I mean, this guy was uh, an impact guy. Obviously, you could see it at an early age. This was 
going to be a superstar. If it was a rapid development for the executives and coaches involved, then as you can imagine, the news also surprised some players. After being drafted by the Tigers 10th overall in the 2005 MLB draft and making his MLB debut in August of 2007, Detroit outfielder Cam Maven was feeling excited about his future wearing the old English D. He'll never forget learning that he'd been traded in a unique and at the time novel way. I'm a young kid. I'm 20 years old. The city loved me. The organization, you know, drafted me. So clearly they were fond of me. So I was at home, you know, putting in a lot of work, excited about what I thought was going to transpire. Sitting at home playing Xbox. And this was also the first time Xbox Live came around, right? So I really do remember playing Xbox Live and all of a sudden I'm playing with one of my one of my boys and he's like, did you just see that? And I'm like, what? He's like, bro, it just said Cameron Maven got traded to the Marlins. And I'm like, no way. So apparently it scrolled across the screen, which was super crazy. So I actually found out via Xbox Live playing online that I was getting traded. I didn't, I didn't even hear from my agent. So it was a, it was a crazy offseason. Maven wasn't the only player to get the trade news while seeking out a rare moment of relaxation. Marlins pitcher Dontrell Willis was in another country when he caught his name in the news report. I was in Mexico in Cabo. And I saw my face on a, 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 I couldn't even understand what they were saying, but I saw me and his face. And next thing you know, he called me from actually our friend Hugo's Barbershop and said, Willie, we gone. We're going to Detroit. I said, I'm not going anywhere because I'm in Cabo right now. It's literally day one in Cabo. I'm going to sip my margaritas. But yeah, it, it, it was crazy. And obviously, you know, uh, he played awesome for him. You know, I played terrible for him, but... I think if you're a Tigers fan, you'll definitely make that trade 100 times over to get one of the best uh, hitters of all time. As evidenced by his energetic phone call to his friend Willie, Miguel Cabrera was excited about the prospect of landing in Detroit. I mean, I was excited because when I see the roster that year, I see a lot of Hall of Famers too over there. So I have a chance to experience, like, play with a uh, playoff thing. Um, I was kind of like, okay, let's go. I got the opportunity to play in Detroit. We are great team, so let's go on there and trying to do my job and trying to help the team to, to go to a playoff. Cabrera was enthusiastic about going to a team that was committed to winning, but how did his future teammates feel about the additions? Young starter Justin Verlander admitted he didn't know much about Miguel Cabrera at the time, but he knew he could hit. To be quite honest, I didn't know a lot about Miguel. At the time, you know, I had kind of just broken in the league and he was in the National League for the, his first few years of his career. So the second that we traded for him, I started doing some, some research and um, obviously knew of him knew how good he was, but as soon as I started like really looking into the player he was, it was quite clear that he was great. I don't think anybody could have imagined Maybe maybe he could have. I mean, he took another step forward here with this organization. You know, he was already really good. But as what happens with Hall of Fame players, you know, he took his talent and started putting it all together. And you know, just when you think he's really good, he takes another step forward. And that's what he was doing here for all those years. While Verlander was looking forward to getting to work with Miguel Cabrera for the first time, catcher Ivan Rodriguez was happy about reuniting with his former Marlins teammate. One thing that made the transition from South Florida to the Great Lakes State relatively seamless for Miggy were the familiar faces according to Pudge Rodriguez. Get together with us really quick, obviously with me, Maglio, Polanco, you know, all the, all the guys, Carlos Guillén, all those guys, you know, he feels like, uh, like he was playing in the morning. He feels like home playing with us. In Cabrera's first season in Detroit, the team went 74-88 and 88 and finished fifth in the AL Central. It might not have been the finish the team dreamed about after a blockbuster offseason, but there were still highlight reel moments that foreshadowed future greatness, starting with Miguel hitting a home run in his first game in a Tigers uniform. Cabrera hits it high, hits it deep, way 
In June 2008, Miggy knocked his 200th career double. The 0-1. Cabrera drives one to deep right center field. That's well hit. Rowan on the back, going back, still moving back, and it'll bounce on the warning track up against the wall. Rowan plays the carom, and Cabrera's going to easily jog into second with a leadoff double. Man, Cabrera just crunched that ball. You could hear it off his bat. Miguel continued to flex his penchant for clutch hitting that we'd seen him display as a rookie in the 2003 World Series. Ten days after recording a walk-off double at home against Colorado, Miggy hit a game-winning walk-off home run against Cleveland in July. He just might end this thing right here. With gap. In the air toward left field on the move, Francisco. Despite 2008 being a down year for the Tigers, one that saw them inverse the previous season's record of 88 and 74, Cabrera still slashed 292, 349, and 537. Miggy led the team in home runs, doubles, RBI, total bases, OPS, and OPS+. Over the next three seasons, Detroit went from fifth place in the AL Central to first. Along the way, they added more talent like starting pitcher Max Scherzer, designated hitter Victor Martinez, and catcher Alex Avila. By 2011, the Tigers were a 95-win team full of promise. Of course, Miggy was still busy doing Miggy things. Teammate and close friend Victor Martinez remembered one particular moment in 2011 when he knew Cabrera was truly special. We were playing the White Sox at home in Detroit. And uh, they have they have their, uh, their closer. I think his name was Sergio Santos, something like that. The guy was bringing it to 98, 99, you know, around there. And uh, he was the first hitter uh, of that inning, bottom of the ninth, tie game. Man, first pitch slider, walk off homer. And I'm like, this guy throw 98, 100, first pitch slider, and you taking deep. My head starts spinning like ah. You know what, at the end of the day, I was like, ah, I don't think about it, man, he, he's, he's different. The Tigers were down 8-1 to the White Sox, going into the bottom of the fifth inning, and by the bottom of the ninth, Cabrera once again authored a storybook moment. Miguel Cabrera now. Gone. See ya. Game over. Wow. Oh, my goodness. First pitch, Miguel Cabrera, game-winning walk-off home run. Of all the unlikely comebacks, the Tigers have come back to walk off the White Sox. Wow. Little did we know what magic awaited us over the next two years. Coming up on La Leyenda, an in-depth look at Miguel Cabrera's remarkable Triple Crown season, an achievement that hadn't been accomplished in baseball since Carl Yastrzemski did it in 1967, and one that has not been conquered since. That's next on La Leyenda. Welcome back to La Leyenda. I'm Daniela Bruce. For those unfamiliar with baseball's offensive Triple Crown Award, a player needs to lead a league in batting average, home runs, and runs batted in at the end of the season in order to win. In other words, nothing short of an extraordinary feat. According to Baseball Reference, a Triple Crown Award has been won 28 times in baseball history by 23 different players dating back to Paul Hines' inaugural win in 1878. 
In December of 2020, Major League Baseball announced that Negro Leagues baseball records from 1920 to 1948 would be designated as Major League status, expanding the list of Triple Crown winners to include Hall of Famers like Josh Gibson and Mule Suttles. Gibson, Rogers Hornsby, and Ted Williams each won the award twice in their careers. And in the 1920s, center fielder slash first baseman slash overachiever Oscar Charleston won it thrice. Not everyone who won the Triple Crown made it to the hollowed halls of Cooperstown, but many did. Guys like Tigers legend Ty Cobb, Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, Mickey Mantle, Frank Robinson, and Carl Yastrzemski. It's important to note that 22 of the 28 Triple Crowns were awarded before the breaking of the color line in 1947. And only three Triple Crowns have been won since Major League Baseball expanded its schedule from 154 games to 162 games during the 1961 and 62 seasons. The league is bigger, the season is longer, and the level of competition is arguably higher than it's ever been before. So heading into the 2012 season, many fans had given up hope that they'd see another Triple Crown winner in their lifetime. After all, it had been nearly half a century since Yaz last won it in 1967. Miggy turned 29 a few days into the 2012 season. He was coming off a year where he hit 344 with an OPS of over a thousand. For most players with typical human limitations, topping a season like that would be impossible. But if there's one thing we've learned about Miguel Cabrera, it's that he's simply built different. A Triple Crown winner needs to hit for average, to hit for power, and to prove that they can hit in high leverage moments with runners on base. What was it about Cabrera's swing that made him a prime candidate to break the 45-year award drought? Former Tigers manager Jim Leland explains Miguel's unique approach at the plate. And Miguel, really to this day, he really always swung like a little guy, but hit like a big guy. And most people, that's reversed. They swing like a big guy and hit like a little guy. But Miguel Cabrera swung just the elasticity of his swing, not overswinging, ball jumping off his bat. You know, he made one of the most difficult things, by some people's vote, the most difficult thing in sports to do is to hit a baseball. And he sincerely made that look easy. According to Leland, Cabrera was more than capable of hitting an opposite field blast to right center, but he was also never afraid to take a single. And being an unselfish hitter in that respect helped Miggy drive in runs in key moments. The big key to, I think, it's really simple at the end of the day. Miggy wasn't afraid to take a base hit. You know, he doesn't have the power anymore that he had, obviously. But when he did have the big time power, he was still not afraid to take a base hit with two outs and a man on second. He didn't never try to do too much. He also had the best power to the opposite field of any right-hand hitter I've ever seen. I mean, he could hit balls out of Comerica Park like ping-pong balls to right center field. And he'd put a show on in batting practice. He'd go to the right field line, right center, center field, left center, left field. When some of the young players through the other teams were watching us take BP, he'd put on a show. And he never hit good that night. I used to get on him, but I didn't like it when he did it. But he could put on a show with the best of them. But I think the key to Miggy was, like I said, he swung like a little guy, but he hit like a big guy. And he never tried to do too much. And he picked his spots to try to hit one out of the ballpark. But he'd also pick his spots to know where that, that RBI on second base was a huge RBI, maybe a game winner. Miggy wasn't afraid to take a base hit the other way. Former teammate and Hall of Famer Pudge Rodriguez recounted Miggy explaining his offensive approach. One thing that Miguel and I, we sit a lot when we play together in the Marlins in Detroit, the, one of the things that he told me, and I find that very interesting, that he said, I don't look to hit base hits all the time. I look to hit the ball good. I want to make good contact. I want to hit the ball in the sweet spot of the bat. Whatever it goes, it goes. Because I cannot control the ball 
after I hit my bat. And that's genius. That's that's the best way to be a good hitter, right? You know, the, you have the control to hit the ball hard. You can hit the ball hard if you want to. And you cannot put yourself out or swing bad pitches if you think ahead that you're going to hit the ball hard. And basically that's the Miguel Cabrera that we, that we know. You know, you play with him, we play with him, we play against him. And every time he was at the plate, I mean, pretty much more than 90% of the time, he hit the ball in the nose somewhere for an out or for a home run or hit the ball in the gap. Stepping into the batter's box, focused on making great contact with a selfless mindset, helped Cabrera hit for average and rack up RBI. But what about his home runs? Friend and teammate Dontrell Willis shared his thoughts on the power behind Miggy's swing. What makes him great is, be, is because he has power to all fields and he trusts his hand-eye coordination. It never took him a huge leg kick or a lot of energy to provide power. So he trusted his hand-eye coordination. He always worked on hitting the ball the other way. And so Miggy talked about anybody that hits 300 is someone that used the whole field. And so even till this day, he still hits the ball with authority to the right center, right field line. And so that was one thing that even the one time I faced him, and I struck him out, by the way, and I never let it down. But um, this is ability to, to understand how the pitcher wants to attack him and being able to get to that baseball with authority countless times, especially you being the focal point in the lineup day in and day out for the last 20 years. Looking back, we can say that heading into 2012, Miguel Cabrera possessed all the necessary skills to win the Triple Crown. He hit for average, for power, and he picked up timely hits with runners in scoring position. But retrospection is always easy in comparison to prognostication. At age 29, Cabrera had to execute those skills better than anyone else in the American League over the course of a 162-game season. Here's a few names of players he competed with over the course of six months. Mike Trout, Derek Jeter, Adrian Beltre, Joe Maurer, Prince Fielder, Curtis Granderson, Josh Hamilton. Joe Poznanski is a longtime baseball writer and author of several books, including The Baseball 100, which takes a look at the 100 greatest baseball players of all time. Spoiler alert, Miguel Cabrera makes that list. He explained to us why the level of competition made Miguel's Triple Crown the greatest Triple Crown season in history. It's an incredible achievement, and I think... Looking back on it, it is the greatest triple crown in baseball history in the sense of that nobody had to face the sort of competition that he had to face for those three things, right? Like he had to, in order to win the batting title, he had to out-hit, you know, 10 incredible players, Derek Jeter-level players. In order to win the home run thing, he had to he had to beat some of the, you know, greatest sluggers of, of all time. Uh, and same thing with RBIs. And, and so... Not to in any way downplay how great Carl Yastrzemski's was or Frank Robinson. They played in a much smaller league. It was it was a much different thing. You faced the same pitchers over and over again. It was a different uh, a different feat. The Triple Crown is so hard to do anyway. But in today's game, where there are so many good teams and good players, and and you know expansion has just changed the dynamic. Uh, it's a near impossibility, and for what he did, I think, is unique in baseball history. So how exactly did the 2012 season play out for Miguel Cabrera? Well, by May 13th that season, Cabrera played his last game of the year with a sub-300 batting average. For the next 128 games, Cabrera's batting average would not dip below 300. He slashed 344, 409, and 677 for a remarkable July. 
Then he upped the scorch factor by hitting 357, 429, and 663 in August. In his final 31 games over September and October, Miggy somehow added even more power. He belted 11 home runs and drove in 30 runs on his way to making history. It's also worth noting that Cabrera's splits against right-handed pitchers were actually better than lefties in 2012. His OPS was over 1,000 against righties that season. Now that we're living in an era when matchups are such a huge part of the game, we can appreciate just how dominant Cabrera was that year against whomever he faced at the plate. Now let's go to the unforgettable moment when Miguel Cabrera actually secured the Triple Crown in the final game of the 2012 season. It was Wednesday, October 3rd, 2012, and the Tigers were playing in Kansas City. The series was split 1-1 at that point, but Detroit had already secured first place in the AL Central ahead of the Chicago White Sox. In his penultimate game, Miggy went 2-for-3 with two runs batted in, bringing his RBI total to 139, a comfortable lead over Josh Hamilton in Texas, who had 128. Two days earlier, Cabrera hit his 44th and final home run of that 2012 season that edged him one ahead of Hamilton and Curtis Granderson with the Yankees. That left only batting average unsecured. On Miguel's heels that final week was 21-year-old Mike Trout, who was posting absurd numbers and spellbinding fans in his true rookie season. As the Angels played their last series in Seattle, Trout recorded seven hits over his final 13 at-bats, bumping his average from 321 to 326. With the pressure on in the team's final regular season game, manager Jim Leland explained that the team had someone on Trout Watch that night. I'll always remember the, the, the night. It was so funny because I think he was battling Mike Trout for the batting average, and we had Brian Britton down in the dugout in a room behind the dugout actually monitoring the Angels and what Mike Trout was doing. Just to ramp up the intensity, Cabrera went 0 for 2 to start the game. Still, whatever Trout's heroics were in Seattle that day, they weren't enough to catch Miggy's 330 batting average. And as soon as the Tigers could mathematically eliminate the possibility, Leland made the decision to take Cabrera out of the game in the bottom of the fourth inning. What followed was one of the greatest moments in Tigers history. Let's hear that unforgettable call by our very own Dan Dickerson. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Ramon Santiago has popped out of the dugout with two outs here in the fourth. Miguel Cabrera is coming off. He raises his arms out like, what? I don't want to come out, but listen to these fans. What a great moment. Your triple crown winner the in big 2012, man. Miguel Cabrera. The big man is special, boy, I tell you. Nobody hits the ball like the big man. What a class move by Jim Leland to have Santiago go out, replace him in the inning. Max is going to step off the mound for a moment. Everybody on their feet. This is very Here at Kauffman Stadium. This is very, this is really something. Great out K-line right next to me. A curtain call. Yes, sir. Way to go, big man. <laughs> That's just great. Love these fans. Love the season that we have witnessed with Miguel Cabrera's special, special year. It was an incredible moment, not only for Tigers fans, but all fans of baseball. You saw it in the faces of the crowd on their feet that night at Kauffman Stadium. Everyone felt the gravity of that moment. And then when we knew that it had been decided that Miggy won it, we took him out of the game. And I'll never forget the people of Kansas City were so gracious. Uh, they really appreciated what he did, as all the players on both teams did. So 
That was my big moment with Miggy. That was a, a wonderful, wonderful moment. Max Scherzer got the start that night for the Tigers, and he will always remember being on the mound for that moment. I just remember during the game, you know, like in the second and third inning, like being in between, uh, you know, I'm down in the in the tunnel, and that everybody was, you know, was like, okay, how many how many home runs does Curtis Granderson have? Like, I forget who he was chasing that, but like, how many RBIs does he have? How many, you know, and, and seeing that if he came out of the, you know, at what point could he come out of the game and that he would have the triple crown? Um, and so knowing it was coming, I think they said he has it. You know, he, they and uh, I also thought remember just him coming out. You know, before the ending ends, and the Kansas City Royal fans appreciating the moment as well. That it, that was a baseball moment. The fans there in Kansas City recognized it and gave him a standing ovation on the road, because, like you said, we've only seen that that accomplishment happen once in the past, you know, 50 years. And I have a front row seat, <laughs> like you said, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the mound. I have a front row seat of this. So yeah, that's one of the rare moments you get to witness in baseball history. Teammates since Mingy's arrival in Detroit in 2008, Justin Verlander also recalled a very special moment he had with Cabrera after he secured the win. You know, when he came off the field, um, I had actually uh, earlier. Uh, in the series, I had, I had gotten him a watch and engraved it for him just for his triple crown. And um, I, uh, we went and sat in the locker room and, you know, there's like one inning left um, of the game or something, a couple innings left or whatever. And we went and sat in the locker room and had like a celebratory cigar um, and just was like, man, you realize what you just did? And just to have those like moments that nobody else is around. It was just him, I, him, me, and uh, Prince. And uh, I asked him for something that was game use. He gave me the helmet um, that he took off uh, right, right after he came off the field. So just a, a really special moment. Clearly that moment meant so much to so many different individuals. For Miguel's teammates, his managers, the Tigers front office, it captivated everyone from casual baseball fans to pastime diehards, baseball writers, historians, and of course, the entire Detroit Tigers fan base. Who knows if we will ever see another baseball player achieve that offensive feat again. Now, as if winning that Triple Crown wasn't enough, Cabrera also took home a Silver Slugger and an MVP award in 2012. He claimed another important victory that year, according to Max Scherzer. Yeah, I, I, was, I was even, as I was telling the story of the Triple Crown, I realized then he won the Fantasy Football League, and I remember he was quadruple crown. Like, Jesus, <laughs> Miggy, I, you can't stop winning, can you? <laughs> Coming up on La Leyenda, how does a player like Miguel Cabrera follow up a quadruple crown winning season? Seems impossible to top, doesn't it? Well, in the words of Max Scherzer, Miggy leveled up the very next season. How did he do it? That's next on La Leyenda. Welcome back to La Leyenda. I'm Daniela Bruce. After making baseball history in 2012 and becoming the first player in nearly 50 years to win the Triple Crown, Miguel Cabrera came into the 2013 Tigers season with his mindset on getting better. Yes, better. Teammate Max Scherzer remembers being blown away by Miggy's determination and his commitment to continual improvement. Kind of the example that he set that has still res resonated with me to this day is, uh, you know, I always tell this story to, uh, you, know, get, you know, guys today is that, uh, you know, he won the Triple Crown in 2012. I mean, one of the best, you know, offensive seasons we've ever seen. Uh, and, but then he came back and, you know, I know he got hurt in 2013, but by the All-Star break, he had already had better numbers at the break than every one of his triple crown numbers. Like he was, he leveled up after being the MVP. And I just remember playing with him being just in awe of that, of, of saying, hey, look, you can be the best player in the game and there's no limits and you can be better. 
And just and if if he if Miguel Cabrera can be better, then guess what? Everybody can be better. Uh, that no one no one's um, you know you can't just sit here and be stagnant within the game. Like you have to come in every single year and get better. And that was you know when you when I was playing with Miggy, that that's the biggest thing I took away from you know playing with him in his game is just that that you know drive and relentless competitiveness to continually push yourself to get better. And it, you know for me it made my, made me look at myself and say I got to get better. And Max was right. Miggy effectively leveled up in 2013. His first half numbers were absurd. He hit 365 over his first 93 games, raking in 30 homers and 95 RBI along the way. For 68 consecutive games from June to September, his OPS was over 1,100. Author of the Baseball 100, Joe Poznanski, explained why Miggy was arguably better in 2013 than he was in his previous season. I mean, he was better, I think, in 2013 than he was in 2012. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't win the Triple Crown again, but he was better the, the next year. And I, I just think it was, you know, it really comes back to that ability to just square up the ball every single time, it seemed. You know, I mean, he he was never a big strikeout guy. In, a, in an era where power hitters strike out 150, 160, 170 times, he struck out 100 times, you know, maybe. You know, I mean, that was especially during his really great stretch. And and uh, and he just hit the ball so hard. And it, and it came easily to him as as well which i think is 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 an interesting just part of the way he played you know you look at at guys who hit the ball hard and a lot of them are huge swingers you know i mean that's that's what the where the strikeouts come from and him it was it was a very compact swing very natural uh and and you couldn't get the ball by him i mean a lot like albert pujols i think those those two guys were very comparable uh, in you know in their primes and and I think Cabrera doing it in the 2010s you know which is which when pitching really started to take over the game a little bit is is quite remarkable. One person who had mixed feelings about the numbers Miggy was putting up that year was Chicago White Sox manager Ozzy Guillen, a fellow Venezuelan that played 16 years in the bigs before gravitating towards coaching. Guillen was a third base coach for the 2003 World Series champion Marlins, so he was very familiar with Miguel Cabrera's abilities. In 2004, Guillen took over as the manager of the White Sox and helped lead the team to back-to-back 90-plus -back win seasons in 2005 and 2006. After a down year in 2007, Chicago was one of the teams trying to put together an enticing trade deal to land Cabrera. So when the news broke that the former Marlin was not, in fact, heading to the White Sox, but instead going to an AL Central rival, Guillen was understandably dismayed. I hate it. I hate it because we was in a fight. We was in the middle of the fight to give Miguel Cabrera. I, I like, I just called my wife and said, we, we're ready to give Miguel, we're ready to give Miguel, we're going to make a trade, we're going to... But then I don't know the players. I don't care which is minor league, what they trade. You trade, you made you trade, Kenny. I'm, I'm just managing the team. And we was close when they said Miguel Carrera just got trade. I was, I was drinking with Bruce Bochy and Joe Madden. And I said, Miguel Carrera got trade. I said, yes, we got him. Detroit Tigers. Where they come from? I'm, like, I'm sitting there, I told you, I'm like, Bochy go, what is come? Then I go and... Whoever scouted that trait, you should get fired. <laughs> because I thought, I thought we are better players than they were offered. But some reason they went to Detroit and said, wow. Guillen, like many, admitted he had some doubts about Miguel's ability to hit for power at Comerica Park. And I was wrong about Miguel. 
going to Detroit. Now, I said Miguel Carrera never going to hit 30 home runs. He's going to be a great player, great hitter, but I don't think Miguel Cabrera is going to hit 30 home runs the way he likes to hit because in Detroit, the gap where he loves to hit, deep, way deep. All of a sudden, look at what he made me shut up. He made me like, I never told him that. I told my kids, I said, no chance Miguel Cabrera would be the same player. He was in the National League, the American League, Detroit ballpark, eh. And he was better in Detroit than he was, he, he was in Miami. Once again, the theme of continuous improvement pops up in Miguel's story. Guillen remained in Chicago until 2011. What was it like for him to manage against Miggy all those years? Pain in the butt. Make sure when he gets to hit, make sure nobody's on base. Because he got to fight. And he got to show you. Oh, now you're going to face me. I got to show you. I got to kill you. But it was fun. It was fun because I feel proud to we compete against each other. I know, he know I want to strike him out every at bat, even I'm not pitching. I want to find a way to tell the guys what to do to him. In right field, I don't know the Chicago field have the patio sign. They say patio sign between right field and center field. And we sit together and talk and say, if I play here, I will knock the patio sign down. How many times we'll hit it there? Because that's the best thing to just hit and look at the patio sign and say, I'm going there. I'm make sure I hit that sign four times a day. And I say, well, I wish that can happen too to how you with the ball club. But uh, unfortunately, I had to watch him from another side of the field. Thankfully for Guillen, he was not in the opposing dugout on July 9th, 2013, when Cabrera hit his 350th career home run at Comerica Park in a game against the White Sox. Here's the one-two offering. Driven. Left center field. Hit well. That ball is gone. A home run. Cabrera shoots the gap in left center. 29th home run of the year. From the onset, Cabrera made a habit of impressing teammates and striking fear into his opponents. But by 2013, he was captivating baseball fans across the globe. Some believed Miguel might be the first person to win back-to-back Triple Crown since Josh Gibson did it for the Pittsburgh Crawfords and Homestead Grays in 1936 and 1937, respectively. But as teammate Max Scherzer mentioned, unfortunately in 2013, Miguel got injured. On July 22nd, Cabrera left a game against the White Sox in the fifth inning with what was reported as a sore left hip flexor muscle. At the time, he was batting a major league best 358 with 31 home runs and 96 RBI. Cabrera was back in the lineup by July 27th, but missed a few more games in early August. On August 29th, he left a game against the Athletics early after a tricky slide into second base. Still, the Ironman Cabrera was back in the lineup the next day. Whatever nagging issues he was dealing with, he still managed to pick up AL Player of the Month award honors. By September, it was clear that Miguel wasn't his usual otherworldly self. He hit one home run in the final month of the season. But even a less than perfect Miggy is still Miggy. Despite being hampered by injuries, he hit 316 in the second half of the 2013 season. He also knocked in 44 home runs for the second consecutive year. He racked up 137 RBI, just one shy of the AL leading Chris Davis. He won his third straight American League batting title, and he likely did so while playing through significant pain. During the 2013 season, Miguel's injuries were at times referred to as hip, groin, or abdomen issues, But in late October, Tigers president and GM Dave Dombrowski confirmed that Cabrera had a grade two or three groin strain, one that would likely require surgery. 
Around that same time, Miguel Cabrera won his second consecutive American League MVP award. He also won the 2013 ESPY award for best MLB player. By nature, the baseball community is focused on numbers. And in the words of writer Joe Posnanski, looking at Miguel's baseball reference page for that stretch of time is like staring directly into the sun. Excellence was habitual for Cabrera. Former Detroit manager Jim Leland expounds on why Miguel's consistency was so impressive. That's what's amazing about it. Uh, Miggy pretty much came in the same every day, you know, and he was going to compete every day. And, you know, he didn't always have a great day, but he always had the potential to have a great day. You knew there was something special could happen at any moment, any day with Miguel. You knew that as a manager. Sometimes, selfishly, you got to expect it. You know, you begin to expect it a little bit. But uh, the consistency is just... You know, he was, he knew the pitchers, you know, he didn't worry about who was pitching, you know, he knew what he had to do, he didn't really change his swing, he, in those days, he could take a two-strike hit and, and get a base hit to right field, he could hit a ball in the left field seats, and he and Magler Adonis were two of the only guys that I ever managed that could take a, a sinker ball pitcher, a pitch down and in toward their back foot, and get a base hit to right field, that's hard to do, there's not many people can do that. And him and Maglio could do that on a consistent basis. It's easy to be amazed by Cabrera's stats during this period of time, but perhaps one thing that gets overlooked with Miguel is his toughness and his grit. Former Tigers teammate Alex Avila remembers Miggy's fortitude and his desire to play no matter what he was dealing with physically. He was kind of consistent as far as like what he knew he needed to do every single day from a, from a hitter standpoint. But not only that, like he posted up every day. Uh, he played every single day. You know, day games after night games, whether he was hurt, whether he was, wasn't feeling good, that's, that's one thing that a lot of people don't know. I mean, there were times where he was really banged up, really hurt, um, broken bones, um, you, know, uh, you know, tight muscles, pulled hammies, you know, what have you. And, and he played through it, figured out a way to be productive and not really affect his overall production over the course of, of that time. And, you know, it was, it was pretty remarkable because there was a lot of injuries that he had over his career that would put guys out for a significant period of time, and he played through them. Former manager Jim Leland also recounted Cabrera's ability to not only play through pain, but have fun doing so. To be able to manage that guy every day, you know, it wasn't hard at all. It was easy. You didn't have to really do much maintenance work with Miggy. He, was, he came to play. You know, he knew he could play. There wasn't anything I could tell him about hitting. You know, there, I might be able to mention something about base running or defense or something, but as far as hitting, what was I going to tell Miguel Cabrera? It would have been embarrassing for me to talk to him about it. So the thing that I really enjoyed about Miggy was he legitimately had fun playing the game. And it, it can be an effort for a lot of guys. It's hard. It's hard to play every day. And I think sometimes uh, none of us really understand what it takes to be an everyday player at the major league level. That's very difficult. It's very hard. And most people say, well, they fly first class, they stay in the best hotel, and that, all that's true. There's no question about that, but it still takes its toll. And uh, Miggy played at one stretch for me with a broken bone in his foot. So, uh, but he always had fun playing. As former teammate Max Scherzer described, Miggy's hardworking attitude coupled with his pure baseball joy set the tone for the rest of the team. To me, he was a big teddy bear in a way. He just, you know, he, he was so much fun just to be around and having a clubhouse. Uh, you know, very humble and very appreciative 
of everything that you know he was able to accomplish and that he just wanted to be one of the guys he just wanted to have fun and joke around he didn't want to be the you know like you know have all this he just wanted to be one of us and, and go out there and compete and win and uh, you know when your best player is like that that kind of sets a tone sets a tone for everybody else to hey show up and let's have fun and be be great together not just have individuals coming up on La Leyenda there's one person who had the best seat in the house to watch Miguel's early success with Detroit, as well as his triple crown and back-to-back -back MVP seasons. Our own Dan Dickerson, the voice of the Detroit Tigers. He sits down with us to relive some of his favorite memories during this era. Just how special was this time period for Tigers fans? That's all next on La Leyenda. Welcome back to La Leyenda. I'm Daniela Bruce and joining me now is the voice of our Detroit Tigers, Dan Dickerson. All right, now we'll get into it. 2012, Dan, when you reflect on it to this day, what are the biggest things that stand out to you about that Triple Crown season? Man, it's just, I mean, those two seasons, you almost had to put them together because mm -hmm. the next season was arguably better. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, MVP both years, but in terms of the offensive numbers, it was just in ridiculous. So I... I probably at some point you just ended up getting used to the fact that this guy's in the lineup every day and he's going to do something probably special and against the very best pitchers in the game, which is how you measure the greatest players. He would always do something impressive. And so I don't think I ever took it for granted, but you just having that name in the lineup every day performing at that level and to review it's 340 40 plus home runs, 130 RBIs plus in both years. There, there aren't many players in history who can do both of those things. Hit for average, hit for power, drive in runs. And there is a skill to being an RBI guy. There absolutely is a skill. It's not just you have the more opportunities because you're hitting in the middle of the order. Those guys know how to get the count in their favor to make sure they're very disciplined and driving pitches because that guy, they got that guy to the strike zone. And then when they did, they punished any mistake that might be there. They got better pitches to hit because of how they went about their at bats. So there's a real skill to that. And so anytime an inning got started and Miguel was coming up and you knew that that other team was trying to manage the game so that he wouldn't get up that fifth time in a game, making sure that lineup doesn't turn over for Miguel one more time because he usually hit third. So it was just an incredible feeling that this, and they weren't great offenses. They weren't some of the highest scoring offenses in Tigers history, but whenever he was in the lineup, which was virtually every day, uh, you knew that in the late innings, Anything could happen. You never felt like you were out of a game as long as he was around. Well, it's interesting that the first thing you mentioned was having to group together 2012 and 2013, because when we talked to Max Scherzer, his response was almost the same as yours. 2013 was even better. He somehow was able to level <laughs> up from what he did in 2012. But there's one thing about 2013 that was different, and that was he battled through a, quite a few injuries in 2013. Was there ever a moment where you were like, I don't know if he's going to be able to do that again? I, it's amazing how I think you were kind of aware of it, mm -hmm. but I don't think he talked about it much. Dave Dombrowski addressed this when we talked to him. It's just like they knew. Mm -hmm. They took a look at his leg, and it was, what, purple all the way down? And I don't think I had any idea. But it was ankle and then it was knee, and really from 2013 on, he was dealing with some things. But I remember in uh, September of 2013, he, was, he wasn't in great shape, and he still did okay <laughs> the, the rest of that year and into the, into the postseason, which is 
remarkable. I'm guessing he was hitting basically off one leg at, at one, you know, for probably several weeks at a time going into the postseason when he still came up with big hits. So I, I had no extent of the, uh, idea of the extent of the injury. And, but it is, that is kind of where it started in terms of just successive years of injuries that robbed him of probably some productivity. I know it did. You know, he's talked about it. He, bad right knee that's deteriorating and he can't drive off his back leg. But look at the production really right up until the last couple of years. He was still an incredibly productive hitter. And lastly for you, Dan, just thinking back on those times and I was a fan at the time strictly just a Tigers fan and I remember the energy surrounding this team the energy surrounding this ballpark that has to be pretty memorable for you sitting up in the booth right behind home plate just overlooking this ballpark every day oh yeah and that's why I want these players to experience that 30,000 plus every night they're drawing two and a half million to three million plus in those prime years. And it was the star power that, that brought people to the ballpark, led by Miguel Cabrera, but obviously Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. Mr. I believe people come to see stars, but it was true. And there wasn't electricity in this ballpark on a nightly basis, June, July, and August especially, because those teams were so good. They had the star power. And I, I want these players to experience it because this ballpark, there's nothing like throwing open that window, calling a game, feeling the energy of the crowd. That's what I always say. I've got to have the windows open, even on a cold day. I want to feel that energy. Well, you could feel a lot of energy that whole summer. Those years, there was. There was just a different feel that we haven't really seen since just because of the players who were on the field, the team was winning, and you knew this could, be, this could be the year that this team went all the way. Next time on La Leyenda, we'll delve into Miggy's later years in Detroit. From 2014 on, Cabrera gave Detroit fans an opportunity to witness some of the rarest milestones in baseball history. 600 doubles, 500 home runs, and 3,000 hits. We'll relive each unforgettable moment through the eyes of players and coaches who bore witness. We'll also hear from the only other living player to accomplish all three milestones, Albert Pujols. Pujols will explain to us what makes Miguel Cabrera so legendary. It's all ahead on the next episode of La Leyenda. I'm Daniela Bruce, and thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.